Disclaimer, this content is meant for information only and not as a diagnosis or medical treatment for any condition. If you or a loved one needs help, please seek out a qualified medical professional for assistance. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Katie Osta, BSN, RN, IBCLC, and infant feeding specialist. Quench your thirst for knowledge and travel with me across the nation to discover, learn, collaborate, and better serve clients from all over the globe. Let's ride and thrive together. Brenna is a neurodivergent and queer IBCLC adult educator, birth doula, mentor, and private practice owner. They have also sought additional training and continuing education in the areas of oral function and infant feeding, rhythmic movement training, RMT, primitive reflexes, brain development in infants, cultural congruency, and trauma-informed care, harm reduction approaches to clinical care, and other counseling strategies for client-facing care. Inclusivity and accessibility are central values that Brenna holds as they approach their work. Brenna also recognizes that their background as a white person in the United States places them in a position of privilege, and they work to be cognizant of how that lens impacts their work. While not working, Brenna can be found staring up at the huge trees in awe or inhaling the salty air at the coast in the Pacific Northwest where they live with their children, partner, and dogs. Please welcome Brenna Hayden to the podcast today. So thank you so much for joining me today, Brenna. I am so excited to talk about reflexes and your reflexes class because I've recently discovered, I mean, I'm sure that you know all of this, but I've recently discovered how impactful understanding, assessing, and working with reflexes can be when working on feeding with babies. So it's completely changed my practice. And I really want to get this information out there so that people start taking more of the classes like what you've done, because they need to know about this. Yeah, it's so good to hear you say that. (laughs) It really is because infant feeding is reflexive, right? For the first three months or so of life. I mean, there's not like a hard stop, but there's this general developmental like what we think of as milestones, right? Are like reflex integration points. And by understanding that and by working in that space, we're doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing, which is finding ways to benefit a baby whose feeding has been impacted for whatever reason. And reflexes are like an essential foundation of that. So I'm stoked you're excited. Right. How and why did you get started in this? I mean, I would say this is, it makes sense once I understand more about reflexes, but it's definitely not something that came up for me typically in all of the, you know, like lactation professional education or definitely in even my basic IBCLC stuff. It's not something that a lot of people are talking about, I feel like. So I guess I come from a sciences background, right? Like I went to school for for marine science. And even before that, I've always been somebody that like, just dives really deeply. And in fact, Spotify just did their year end wrap up and said that they do that with music too. And I was not surprised. <laughs> like <laughs> if you, if I find an artist, I like, I dive deep into the catalog and I go, I go deep into the science that I'm learning. And I try to find those like questions that no one usually like spends a lot of time on or like bothers trying to answer like, oh, well, like, why do, why is something reflexive? Like what, what, how does that happen? Like what, who does that benefit? And like, what is the purpose of that? Mm -hmm. And like, even, even I would, you know, ask things of like 
presenters at conferences when I was first starting to get my feet wet with lactation or my mentor who is endlessly patient and amazing. Um, <laughs> just all these like deep, intense questions that people didn't have the answers for. And the reflexes was one of those big pieces and it just sort of stood out for me. And I, I got really curious and, and then I sort of went down a rabbit hole and I haven't found the other side yet. Well, it's an amazing one. And I think right now, especially it's so needed because we're in this, at least from what I'm saying is we're in this really intense tongue tie world. And don't get me wrong. I see, you know, I don't know, 90% of my clients, babies have tongue tie and a lot of them seek me out for this or are referred by other providers or release providers or different things. So it's, I'm not saying that 90% of babies have tongue tie, obviously, but that is so overpowering right now. And that's what everyone seems to be focusing on. And I feel like we're missing, you know, like it's covering up so much else that we're only focused on oral function. And not that oral function isn't important, but we're missing all these other things. We're missing using these reflexes. We're missing understanding that baby can feed, right, on their own, that we don't need to shove with love or swaddle (laughs) these babies or do any of these things. We don't, you know, the idea that these parents need to latch their baby, even that is really incorrect, right? These babies do the work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I gosh, it's like such a, it's such a important piece that you're bringing up because what gets highlighted for me, and I've been in lactation long enough to remember the the things that were before the tongue tie fad before that there was, a, it was all about all thrush all the time. Everybody had thrush and like, uh-huh. thrush, oh gosh, diflucan and like wild high doses. And, and um, it's, it's always interesting because what happens is we start to see a problem. We find something that maybe is a solution for a problem and, and still we only see the dyad, right. Or like the family unit in pieces, we still see them as like nipples and, or as a tongue or as a mouth. And like, mm-hmm. we're sort of with the tongue tie thing. I think that's the first time that I've really seen people sort of start to acknowledge the entire system of the baby, but still we're focusing on the the oral function and the digestive system together. And then a little bit into their like upper airway respiratory system, but we're still not completely integrating that to a whole point, except in a few cases. And, you know, there, there are people out there like Jennifer Tao and gosh, there are a lot of people out there. Um, Betty Carillos, who really was part of that too, is like that, sort of holistic as in whole person or uh-huh. whole people like model. And like, that's the thing that I think we're really still missing with the tongue tie thing. And we're still missing with, you know, gosh, the new mastitis protocol is another example. Like you start to see it like the longer you're in this, I'm sure you've noticed. Yes. We're like, Oh, it is- well, we'll just address the inflammation because it's just about the breasts. It's like, Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's very systematic. And I think part of that is a very allopathic medical system point of view, right? Like you have an ENT mm-hmm. to deal with the ear, nose and throat, or if it's a stomach thing and then you go to a GI, it's, everything's compartmentalized. And mm-hmm. while I understand that, I think that we're lacking so much understanding of how the ear, nose and throat affects the GI, you know, it's like our body is not compartmentalized our body does not know which 
you know, category it belongs to, and then it isn't supposed to affect another category. That's just not how it works. Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's the thing that I think that's what I think reflexes does for, for the field is that it sort of ties it all together in a way that you go, Oh gosh. Oh, okay. The brain is controlling like all all of this. (laughs) It's like, yes. Right. Like on a fundamental standpoint, like, of course, but like, from like when you dive deep into it and see just how much is controlled and how much like interacts, like, you know, like you said, it's, it's not, the body doesn't know that it's supposed to be separate. So, right. So it doesn't make sense that we have everything in these separate categories. And I think that's one of the unique things about the lactation world too, or at least it has the potential to be. And for some people, like you said, Jennifer Tao really is. And for others, they're just, maybe on their learning path and it's not there yet, but the idea is we're supposed to see the dyad. We're supposed to be, and in large part, frequently the only people, I mean, sometimes the midwife will for a short time afterwards, see the baby or a doula might, but sometimes even you'll have a different postpartum doula and a different birth doula, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're those people who are supposed to see the dyad that that baby and that birthing parent are so intertwined that they're- their very being, their very regulation of their nervous system is affected by each other. Yeah. They're so codependent, basically, you know? Yes. And like, and I would argue too, that like, it's really even more than the dyad because, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm non-birthing people who are supporters or loved ones or who are co-parents are also like Mm -hmm. deeply on a physiologic level and a neurobiological level impacted by the presence of their child and the presence of their child being well. And like all of those things like contribute to this like greater sphere of health, like both from a, an infant and parent mental health standpoint to like a physiological health standpoint, like it is, it's, it's a little ecosystem inside of each home. And it's really quite amazing when you take a step back and you look at, it's like, it's like looking at like I don't know. Do you ever drive the kids around the neighborhood to like, look at all the lights during the holiday season yeah. and you see all the different, yeah, in the, and like, you look at one particularly beautiful house and you're like, Whoa. And then like you step back and you look at the, the neighborhood as a whole. And it's like this, like even more impressive thing. Right. <laughs> That's kind of mm-hmm. how I feel about it. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I think there was definitely a study I saw somewhere. I can't think of the source right now, but what you said just really reminded me of it. Cause I haven't thought about it in a long time. But it had shown that for the non-birthing parent within like minutes of holding their baby, and it wasn't just birth, it like continued throughout the first year, they had huge spikes of oxytocin. And I want to say, I'm trying to remember which Vase part of the present. I remember that study. It's, right? It was really cool. Yeah, the Vase of present. And that's for people who are assigned male at birth and, you know, have have like external gonads as anatomy, like the Vase of present behaves a lot like oxytocin, but also you have this like incredible urge to like protect, which Mm -hmm. is such an interesting and fascinating thing to be flooded with. Right. Yeah. It's really neat. I think it's so important that we understand how our brain works and it's not something that's, you know, common knowledge. I mean, one of the things that I absolutely loved about your course, and I will tell you, I've, I've already sent many links of your course to people. Um, oh, I just, I mean, it was really, really a very good course. And I take a lot of classes, but I think yours was very well done. 
It was very visually beautiful. Even one of my daughters commented that you had a very soothing and nice voice. She's like, she's nice to listen to. Because <laughs> she well, was no, kind my of, kids would agree with you. But <laughs> I guess it depends. Um, but she was just kind of hanging out doing her artwork, listening to my class. But I loved all the add-ins that you had as well, all the little TED Talks and the stuff on ACEs. And, you know, I found all of those to be really informative, neuroplasticity, you know, and it was they were so important. And I loved the fact that you also were sharing that information without also just trying to kind of take it and do it yourself, but also kind of saying, well, these are other experts in this field. These are other people you should listen to and check out and learn from and letting us see it in that format throughout the class. It was really wonderful. I found those very, very helpful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think that above all like this whole space should be a multivocal and collaborative space we are only benefited by by the sharing of knowledge and i think when when one person takes it and tries to be everything i think we lose so much because we lose that incredible capacity for diversity of thought and presentation that helps others who are then learning from this you know, like it's not helpful if there's only one way that things are presented or one, one viewpoint or one format or one, whatever, you know? And so if you can kind of see a different, yeah, different vantage points, then different people take a different amount away because people benefit from that diversity. And so that's one thing I've seen as I, I've traveled and met with different professionals and from all over the country and from for everything from dentists to body workers, IBCLCs, you know, myofunctional therapists, just different people. I've been trying to really learn from other professionals who have different lenses than I do, right? So to get those other points of view. And the one thing that I found is the ones who I want to continue learning from the most are the ones who have curiosity and are open, right? Because there's definitely some that I've encountered that have more of a, this is my knowledge and I have all of this knowledge and I'm staying here solid in my knowledge base. Mm -hmm. And then there's others that are like, oh, well, why do you say that? And how would that work? And, you know, there's just so much more curious of, oh, you see that with your clients. Well, what does that mean? And how would that change what I see? You know, and I think curiosity is such an important factor. I actually find it to be one of the most important in terms of whether or not I want to work with someone because yeah, I think those who kind of get in that space of, I know all of this and this is where I am. They're missing out on so much. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. You couldn't see it, but I was nodding the whole time. Right. It's, it's so true. And I, like, I learned so much from my mentor, uh, IBCLC here. Her name is Sonia Massey. And um, she has uh, this boutique practice in, in Monterey, California. And she said just she said the same thing and and she had an amazing amount of experience when i was interning under her and that was a long time ago <laughs> um, i keep saying 10 years but it's not it's like <laughs> almost 17 years ago <laughs> so um, but, but yeah but she had such humility and curiosity and and you know we would go to like a conference or something and like you know all this stuff and she's like I might learn something I don't know or it might have changed or they might say a different way that I could then use when I'm teaching 
my clients. Like she's like, there's, there's never, you never don't benefit from experiencing education. And, you know, there's sometimes, especially during the, like the height of, or the peak, or I don't know if we've hit the peak, who knows, uh, fingers crossed, right. but with whatever during COVID um, <laughs> we're all doing all this online stuff. And I, I think I was just like burnt out, right. From the computer uh-huh. and like digital learning, which is just not my strength. And I was like, Oh, I've already, I don't need to go to that. I've already seen that. And then I would just like hear Sonia in the back of my mind and like, okay, fine. like I'll go watch that. And it's always good. And like, if nothing else, I take away like, gosh, I really love the way this person is presenting, or I really like the way that they did this. And like, I, I have a lot to learn, even in just presentation styles, you know, we always have things to learn. And I think that's the minute you stop learning is the minute you're outdated. And maybe you need to do something else for a while that you're excited Absolutely. and passionate about. I tell that to my kids all the time. I say, when you are done learning about something, it's probably time to move on. Like, yeah. if you really think that you've learned everything about it, okay then move on and do something else. Like that's okay. I mean, and we've all seen that in life. I mean, my, we've had that discussion before. My, my oldest daughter had a teacher in grammar school that definitely had, you know, she had been a teacher for nearly 30 years and this is how she'd been teaching for the last 28 years or whatever. And she was like, this is how I teach and this is what I do. And we would have talks about how that really doesn't work well. You know, that's Mm -hmm. not, there was no change. There was no adaptation. There was no learning. And that when you get to that point, you should probably do something else because if you're not interested in learning and you don't have any questions or curiosity or creativity left, then why are you there? Like why, why stay in that space, whatever it is, whether it's a hobby or your career or anything, but like, if you really have hit that wall and you're done, then maybe you have fulfilled what you needed to in that space and it's time to move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine anything anything more painful. I mean, I, I certainly can imagine lots of things that are more physically painful, but like from an existential standpoint, right? Of just mm-hmm. like the drudgery of being bored with what you spend. I mean, gosh, we spend in the United States the majority of our time working, right? right. And like more time than we even get to spend with our kids. Like- like from a realistic standpoint mm-hmm. and like, if it's just pure miserable drudgery, like, wh- like that's just, that's, yep. that's miserable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, one of the things I say is that life is hard. Okay. Having working in a job that you don't like is hard and changing jobs is hard, but in a year or two years or five years, which one's going to move you to your goal? Which one's going to make you happier? Which one's going to make you thrive? Like, mm-hmm you know, life is hard. You know, we all have hardships. We all have, some people have more than others, but I don't look around and see anyone who I would say, oh, their life is a piece of cake and perfectly happy. Like I'm never gonna, and I don't think I could ever look from the outside and judge someone and say that, you know, but mm-hmm. I just think that it's, the point is to move to what makes you happier and to move towards your goal. And I had a client say that to me the other day. She said that, you know, this is hard. This is so hard what she's doing right now. And she said, but it's going to be hard no matter what I do. And she's like, I can make it to towards something in six months, or I can just do something really hard and not get anywhere in six months. She's like, I'm going to move towards a goal. I'm going to make this count, you know, because it is life is challenging. And it is, and you don't always have the opportunity in the moment to be able to change jobs or, or whatever, you know, right now I'm, I'm working two 
full-time jobs and it's exact it is hard it's exhausting and I am like always like oh gosh I was supposed to text you back like three weeks ago sorry (laughs) (laughs) life is hard right now but it's it's something that you said stood out and like it was it's it's not about really comparing hardship or even comparing lives right we spend a lot of time actually comparing ourselves to like this like imaginary imaginary like perfect version of ourselves, like whatever that is uh-huh. and I've like really started the more I'm working and the less time that I have you know with my kids and the less time that I have to like pursue fun creative projects or things like that I um I feel like this sense of like failure but only to myself or like failure to like my dreams or goals or like my my personal idealized version of myself. So I've really started like digging into who and what that looks like. Cause I don't really, I didn't really have like a strong, solid concept of, I just knew that I was not achieving it, whatever it is. And so the more I pulled it out and the more I pulled it apart, the more I found like all of these other like places that I had just, you know, unpacked like unpacked biases and, and like internalized shame and, and all kinds of things. And, and I'm like, I made this like statue of dryer lint of my brain (laughs) and like was like this is the most amazing thing and then like I like look at it in the sunlight and I'm like oh my god it's horrifying (laughs) I think actually like the heart is sometimes better because we do gain skills and we can then apply those gosh look at lactation we apply skills from all it's very rarely someone's first job right like we come from everywhere yeah. And like everything you learn up to that point is applicable in some way if you can be curious or creative enough to do that. And I think that's something that we learn best from each other. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think it's, yeah. you're right. It's such a unique area where almost every lactation consultant I know had another job beforehand. And some, you know, were the traditional, I was a fairly traditional course of like, I was the labor and delivery nurse and a NICU nurse, and Mm -hmm. then got my IBCLC. And I know some who were biologists. I know some who were in marketing. I know some people who were teachers and historians. Like, I think it, it's really a calling. And when that calling happens, a lot of people say, okay, I'm going to answer that calling and I'm going to leave where I was. And those, that field that I had made, and I'm going to go answer this calling because they really get called to help families thrive. And that's really mm-hmm. what it is. Like I don't, people say, don't you just, you know, love holding the babies in my job? And I'm like, not really, I'm here to, I'm here to support those parents. I'm here to help families thrive. That's my goal. Like I'm all about the family. I'm not here to like hold and coo over adorable babies. I know. Yeah. Like, why is that the thing that people like, I guess, cause like the other piece of that, that they can think of would be like inappropriate. Like, don't you love seeing all those boobs? <laughs> like, right. like what? what? No, I'm not, I'm not. What? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not I'm just cuddling baby. I mean, that's, I rarely like hold the babies, especially now, like with RSV mm-hmm. being what it is and COVID and the flu and everything. But like, <laughs> just, I'm like, yeah, that's lactation for you. I walk in, I hold the baby and smile at it. And then I leave. Right. Or they say, you know, you just, it must be so great. You just go in and latch the baby and then you're done. Right. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, the worst, that's okay. When it comes from like a stranger, at the grocery store, I think what's kind of upsetting is when I hear that from like a pediatrician or another professional. I'm like, yeah, you really have no idea what we do. None. I know. Right? I wish I could say to that. Like, like, if it was a pediatrician, I'd be like, you must just love giving kids shots. Right? <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> that's not, that's not, they don't even do that. 
that most of the time. But like also like what is like what a reductive way to describe our work. <laughs> I know. And I think it just shows a lack of understanding, but it's it's an odd thing that people think that that's what we do. And when I tell them that I see people with telehealth all over the country and they're like, how can you possibly do that? And I'm like, well, that's because you think I actually latch the baby. <laughs> I'm like, I don't. Babies really latch themselves or their you know, parent does it if they need some assistance. It's a bit I use my words and we talk and I, you know, it's so much of our job is education and support that lends yeah. very well to telehealth, mm-hmm. very well. That's not, that's not a hard thing to do virtually, totally. you know, so I don't find it difficult at all. And it's, you know, it was, I would say initially it was a little bit difficult as I, you know, as you learn any new skill, mm-hmm. um, but it made me realize the crutches that I used, I used my hands instead of my voice, right? I would go over and help instead of, or do really, instead of teach, or I had to rely on the scale, which I have loved not having a scale and (laughs) the freedom that that brings to not over obsess about transfer weights. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, I think we sometimes get into our routine of like, this is what we do. And when you are forced to do something else, like COVID forced us all to change too. I mean, I was doing a few virtual, but not, not a hundred percent virtual before COVID. And when it forces you to change, man, it, it, I probably have a whole new maps in my brain because I had to make <laughs> a whole new connections of how to do things. It's true. And like, the more you use those connections, like the more solidified they get. And like the coolest thing about our brains is that they physically, like the physical landscape, like the map changes with the way, with what you learn. Mm-hmm. And like these like cerebellar pathways, right? This mm-hmm. like combination mm-hmm. between like motor and learning. And like, then we actually have these additional like sort of external pathways that we develop to compensate for the lack of another piece of information. So like not using a scale, right? You're, you're, you're building compensatory tools in other areas of your brain. And you like build these actual, like visible, like on an MRI pathways, and they don't just get used for that thing. Like you now can use those workarounds for other information transfer too, which I think is the neatest thing, like how utilitarian and how efficient, but also how like incredibly adaptable and flexible our brains can be. It's so cool. Oh my gosh. I think that, and I said it earlier, but that video on neuroplasticity was just amazing to me. Just the depth of understanding the idea that our brain is moldable and changeable. And it was exciting to learn something and to think about how, you know, five, 10 years ago, that wasn't the way we thought at all. Right. Right. And to look at how much even Western medicine has changed in the last five or 10 years and how that's really evolving and changing. And like, I don't remember anyone using the term ACEs, you know, five or 10 years ago, like this wasn't a thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. maybe it was, and I, maybe it wasn't either widespread or I wasn't aware of it. Maybe it was a smaller in a section where you had to be in the neuro area to hear it, but it wasn't something I heard. And Mm -hmm. that's really been interesting to learn and to think about how much shaping is done in our brain early. And, you know, since taking your class, I've done a lot of thinking about how do these reflexes shape that brain, right? Because we we know everything does now. It's like Mm -hmm. all of these experiences, all of the touch, all of the, all of the motions, all of the movement, everything that happens to a baby and a child 
is recorded in their brain and it is shaping who they are. So how important are these reflexes? Like, what do they do for it? It's just, right. It's so and how overwhelming is that <laughs> as right? a parent? You're like, oh my gosh, it's all, it's all in there. <laughs> right? I'm but just like, shaping a brain here today. No big deal. No, that's, yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> but no, it's, I mean, but that's something I, I love of teaching parents about though, like, cause if you think about that and you take it to like, it's natural conclusion, like, or the piece I loved and like the piece I like super wanted to include was that piece about neuroplasticity and that whole, whole section. And like that piece about the white matter in the brain mm-hmm. and how, you know, contact early touch and like loving touch and not, not black and white brain gym cards and not baby Einstein and not how many words you said around the baby and like, you know, how many languages you spoke to your baby, like all of these things that parents get really caught up in, right? Uh Like how expensive their clothes are. Um, Like uh, the touch and being held and being carried and being like attentively responded to most of the time. It's not even all of the time. It's most of the time builds more white matter in their brain. And people are so worried about how to have a smart kid. They want a smart kid because they want what's best for their kid. And like the way to do that is just to like hold your baby because the white matter is what's responsible, not the gray matter for the interpretation of the data you take in of the information that you take in and like the reflexive expression and integration are really important for motor learning too. And like all kinds of things, but like, the the sensory experience like the sensory experience of that baby really defines the way that they interpret the world around them for the rest of their life and like it's so simple it's so simple you don't have to pay any money for it like you just be near your baby like most of the time not even all the time and that's like that's it and that's it's relieving for a lot of the parents I talk to especially the parents I talk to in the NICU I'm like you don't have to be in skin and skin contact 20 hours a day. Cause I know that's not realistic here. You know, this isn't mm-hmm. like the kangaroo care lab, you know, and like, this is just the United States and with, with all of its rules and all of its interesting approaches to neonatal mm-hmm. care, but the, like, it's not required that you be there 24 seven, just, you know, most of the time. And, and that allows parents, I think, to take, to give themselves the grace that they also need. Cause like, it's a lot. It is overwhelming to think about how it's all reported, like you said, because it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, and especially if you think about ACEs and like we think about how plastic the brain is and how amazing it is that that's the case. Like that's the best case scenario because we can recover from trauma given the right input and the right environment. We can recover. We are not lost forever. Yes, I think unfortunately in this country, it's easy to get one client or, or one-on-one to get clients to hear you and to reassure and to tell them that what their baby really needs is to have you there. They need you. But in this country, that's not marketable. That's not profitable. And baby Einstein and black and white and baby languages and all of these things are. Mm -hmm. And the amount, I mean, the amount of baby products out there. I thought there was a lot when I had my and she's 13 now, almost 14. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there are so many products. And the amount, I think the problem too, is that so many of the parents come to me thinking, well, I must need this because there's so many of them out there, right? Because it's mm-hmm. a product 
that must answer to a need. So obviously I need to buy a breast massager. Obviously I need to have a nipple shield at home in case I need it, right? Like all of these things. And I'm yeah. like, no, no, the, it's a product because someone can make money by telling you you need it. That doesn't mean you actually do. No, you know? yeah. And there's things that are comfortable. Although I do recommend those those breast massagers because I'm like, listen, this is a great vibrator and it's covered by your HSA, so... <laughs> There you go. Multi. You don't use it for breastfeeding or for lactation or for chest feeding. Like save it for later. Like <laughs> that's true. There's lots of purposes in life. Everything should be Sorry. a little multi-purpose. <laughs> that's okay. I just am blown away by some of the things out there for parents, and it's so overwhelming for them. And yeah. all they need is to hold their baby. You know, I think it does blow their mind when I tell them and remind them of things like we're mammals we're mammals Mm -hmm. and we're carrier mammals and we're meant to hold our babies. And they're like, huh, really? And I'm like, yep, yep. That's what we do. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's that's our biology. If they even can. Right. Cause like how much, like we don't get a lot of leave. There's no guaranteed Mm -hmm. amount of paid leave, you know? And like, depending on the state you're in and even then it's hard to get, it's hard to achieve. Like doing that paperwork, like, oh my gosh, you almost, you almost want to hire a person, but you can't, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where's the money going to come from? And then they're in daycare and the daycares are crowded. And like, it's just not even feasible to like, ask like what infants are like two to four to one for caregivers, like ratios, depending on the state you're in. And like, can you imagine like a caregiver trying to strap four infants to themselves? <laughs> like, right? It's not going to, it's not going to work. So it's, it's leaving aside all of those like systemic and like structural issues with that. Like our, we're literally not set up to support our normal physiological no. like directives, which is just. We're not. Uh, and the, I mean, I try to start with the ones that, you know, I try to point out to the parents what they can do. Yes. You yeah. might be going back to work at three months, but right now your baby's a week old. So mm-hmm. hang out and hold your baby. Like, don't think mm-hmm. about going back to work. Don't get up and do the laundry. Don't prep meals. Like don't start working out because you want to get back in your pre-baby shape, like be with your baby that, you know, like you can't, you're right. There's so much that we can't have because of society, because the parents need to work or because they're a single parent or because the baby's a NICU or because, you know, there's, everyone has different circumstances, but in every circumstance, we can find something positive to hold on to and some positive connection that we can give them and say, okay, yes, your life isn't perfect. No one's is. Let's focus on what you can do today to maintain that connection. Let's focus on what you can do today to help your baby's brain grow and to, to offer that deep connection with them because that's what they're, that's what they're really wanting. That's what they're craving. And that's, yeah, it's, you're right. Sorry. I cut you off and you're saying something so beautiful. I I got too excited. (laughs) It is. And it's like, if that's exactly why I got really excited about reflexes and movements and like they, when I took the class, like no one was talking about infant infants at all. It, this was a class for like people that work in schools and like school age children, right? Which is like what most of this data is like based off of. And so I did a ton of adaptation and there are infant courses out there now. But when I was first doing this, there I was just like, I'm going to, well, it can't hurt. <laughs> so let's just try. And being able to intervene before a reflex is like inhibited or like not integrated properly. And like being able to give parents this, like, like it's not free because our consults aren't free, but like this very cheap, low, like intervention, you don't need stuff to do it. It's just your hands uh-huh. and your baby and yourself and like the, the knowledge and like, 
you can use these movements and really see improvement and you can really see beneficial like impacts like throughout like the rest of their development because of the the way that these movements like really can help the baby's brain to have the best opportunities it can for learning and development and growth. I feel so honored to be able to give parents that knowledge and that information that they can then take and make their own and then like have this like literal hand in connecting with their baby, like you said, and like what they can do and like also in helping their baby in the ways that they want. Yeah, they absolutely. don't need a device to do it, which is cool. It's empowering. And that's, that's how I feel is my, one of the things I really want to do is I do want to educate and support, but I want to empower parents. I want them to feel that they can impact and they can make things better. They can improve how things are going for them and for their child right now. And using this reflexes understanding that I've gotten from your class has really helped that because I first I show them things like, okay, this is, you know, if we're working with a feeding, I'll say these are the reflexes we want to watch for and stimulate with feeding. And it, and when they do that, when they see that happen in that sequence, they're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you just did exactly, you said what they would do and they did it. And it's so amazing to them that the baby can latch, right? And it, it mm-hmm. I mean, it very much goes back to the fact that we forget that we're mammals and that all mammals do this, but it's right. really huge it's so for them. True. Right? No, it's and- so true, right? Like, it's like, we forget, we get so wrapped up in all this other stuff. We're like, oh yeah, like, why wouldn't biology work? <laughs> right? I mean, have you ever seen a puppy or a kitten nurse or, a, you know, a gorilla at the zoo or, you know, a whale or anything? Like, those parents do almost nothing of the feeding, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you watch a little kangaroo and they, the mom isn't reaching in the in the pouch and adjusting anything. It's all Mm -hmm. on that baby. And that's how it's supposed to be because they have reflexes to do this, you Mm -hmm. know? So it's, it's very empowering for the feeding, but then I find it even more so too, when we get to the rhythmic movements to help with reflex expression. And the other day I had a good amount of time with a mom and we looked at reflexes. We were like, you know, we just took a couple and we looked at the ATNR and Moro and I think spinal glunt. And then we stopped and we did um, some longitudinal rocking and some side rocking, right? Mm -hmm. And then we gave baby a few minutes and she was just kind of holding baby and we talked. And then we went back and we did those reflexes again. And before I could even say anything, mom was like, look, the legs are coming up and moving in the ATNR too. And (laughs) like, it was so immediate, the difference to her and such great feedback and positive reinforcement because there's so much we do with our children that you're like, yeah, this is going to help them the rest of their life. This might be great in 20 years, but it's so great to have that immediate and to have that feeling of, oh my gosh, I just did something right now that made today better. Yeah. You know, and it's so empowering. And I think that it's like you said, it doesn't cost any money. All they need to do is put their baby on the floor and play with them and move them and connect. Mm -hmm. And it should be enjoyable. I have a mom of twins right now I'm working with and she has these two adorable boys. And when I saw her yesterday, she was like, you wouldn't believe how much they love these movements. She's like, they are so happy when I do these and they are just, and she's like, and one of them, one of them is still struggling a lot, but the other one is already in a week feeding so much better. 
And she's like, look at how happy he is. He just smiles and smiles when I do these. You know, like, it's so great to give the parents a way that they can connect with their baby. And especially, I find this really, really important in tongue tie clients, a way they Mm -hmm. can touch their baby that doesn't cause pain. Yeah. Right. Because Mm -hmm. I see so many like this, that the twin mom I'm working with, the babies had already been released a month before we started working together. And then she seeked me out because it hadn't gotten any better. And and it didn't have support beforehand. And it's very typical of, you know, what's happening right now where people are needing to really crowdsource their own medical, try to figure out what's going on with their child. And then they're going and getting a release. And unfortunately, nowhere along the way is support in a positive way, right? The release providers aren't encouraging functional assessments or pre-therapy or anything. And so this mom was like, she felt like, every time she touched these babies, especially, you know, she's like feeding was so difficult, but she just felt like every time she was touching them, she caused them pain, Mm. you know? And it was so hard to hear that and to see the pain, you know, she, to see that she was in pain too, and to be able to give her something to do that they enjoyed and that she enjoyed doing with them. It was like so changing in a week. She was so much happier and it was really empowering. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that I see that I can do in this job, that I can empower parents and I can give them tools so that they can make things great themselves. You know, it's not my job to come in and latch a baby or make every, I'm not, I don't have a magic wand. I'm not going to come in and fix everything. That's not what I want (laughs) to do. Right. Right. But to be able to come in and and empower them and give them the knowledge and say, here, try this and to help them get these skills so that they can do it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is the best reward. Like it feels so good when a parent tells you, wow, I did what you said and it really worked and it felt great. Yeah, it does. It does feel good, right? It feels good because you, you're, you're getting confirmation that what you're doing is working mm-hmm. and that what you're spending your time and energy on is working and that they're getting what they've asked for. Right. And you're able to like help in, in a way that is appreciable, like immediately appreciable too, which is always like super satisfying, like on a selfish level, like, yeah, look at that. Right. (laughs) But, but like also, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Like I have such a weird relationship with the word empower. Like I, I'm totally in agreement with what you're saying. I just feel like, like they already have this. And like, what we're doing is like sharing information to unlock the the, the thing that they already carry within them, which is the ability to like be what their baby needs. And they're mm-hmm. already doing that in their, in their own ways. And like a lot of parents kind of come to it on their own. I, I see parents all the time. They're like, Oh, I was doing that. I just mm-hmm. thought he, cause it was a game. He liked it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and like being able to put the words to it for me, like it is, it's like, I like, I try, I'm trying in my own language to replace empowering with inspiring because <laughs> I, like I don't want to feel like I'm the person that's like bestowing something, right? Like I'm not giving permission. I'm, I'm sharing something yeah, that's like I already like that. in the human brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I talk to parents too about this change that happens when you're a parent. And I think that it happens or that it's meant to happen naturally. I think that it's, it's part of the process to really develop your sense of intuition and to Mm -hmm. lean in and and learn to listen to your body, to their body, to that baby's body, you know, and to, to really start to develop 
your own innate like knowledge and trust and instincts or however you want to say it. I'm not really sure, but unfortunately I feel like so often that doesn't happen for parents in our country because they're told, no, what you're seeing isn't right or no, it doesn't matter or no, you know, they're not, they're already, it's like you said, you're inspiring because they are already seeing these things. They're already knowing this. It's just Mm -hmm. that they've been told multiple times by providers that they are wrong. And so they start oh gosh, to doubt yes. themselves. And yeah, that, that gaslighting, oh. you're so right. Oh, God. It's, it's, in, it's intense. And especially when the parents are then right the whole time and mm-hmm. the doctors are like, oh, oh, well. And it's like, no, you, you owe them. <laughs> you owe them like, oh, you were right. I was wrong. Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I just, and- I, yeah, I can't imagine like I, I, that's happened. Like I've had a parent who was like, I really don't think it's this. And I'm like, oh, I mean, I'm going to, I believe that you're the expert in your baby. But like, if you're, if you're asking me for my professional opinion, it's this, and then I'll be wrong. And I'll be like, you were right. I was wrong. I'm really sorry. You know, like, Mm -hmm. and that, and that is like also a big piece of our work. Like, I think that we end up getting and having to be the one that helps people recover from these pediatricians Mm -hmm. who spend all this time gaslighting them. Yes. And I think it's our culture tends to tell parents that they don't know that they're not an expert on their baby Mm -hmm. because they're not a pediatrician. And I, I tell people all the time, no one knows your child like you do. No Mm -hmm. one is an expert on your baby except you and, and whoever, you know, whoever else is with them, whether that's your partner or if you live with somebody else, whatever it is, whatever your family dynamic is. Okay. You Mm -hmm. guys know that child better than anyone else. And a pediatrician may be a doctor who specializes in children in general, great. They're not an expert in your child. And I think the problem is the parents' knowledge and the parents' expertise is not being respected and it's not being seen as valuable at all. They're not part of the team, right? They're mm-hmm. just there to listen to what this doctor is saying and go with it. And it's, it's, I guess gaslighting is just the best word for it, but it is very frustrating, especially in when you have very traditional roles of, you know, a lot of, a lot of pediatricians are male and a lot of times the ones bringing in the baby for the checkups are female and they're just not getting, it can be very misogynistic and they're just not getting heard. And it's, so I try to focus with my clients on really saying, no, listen to that wisdom. You have wisdom in you. You are Mm -hmm. right about your child. Okay. And you don't need me to validate that. You know it. And Mm -hmm. I just, I just want to be that person who says, who says it out loud though, because sometimes they need someone to say it, especially when they've been told no so many times. And, and I tell them too, you don't need my permission for anything. Obviously, you know, you don't need my permission to do or not do anything with your child. And you don't need my permission to say that you have innate knowledge, but if it helps, I will just tell you that you are an expert in your child and you know them and you have innate knowledge as a mother and as a human about your Mm -hmm. body, about their body. And you should listen to that. And when you go to a provider who doesn't respect that innate knowledge, they're not a good Mm -hmm. provider for you. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing later. If you go to a provider for yourself and they're not respecting what you say about your body, then they're not a great provider for you. Right. You know, we're supposed to be it's supposed to be a team thing. Totally. And I, you know, I can hear people like right now, cause this is what always happens. 
It's like, well, not all, <laughs> not all pediatricians and not all men, mm-hmm. not all, you know, and I'm like, I feel like that's implied, but we still have to say it out loud. Because, yeah. You know, I mean, in the year I've met- 2022, it's still, it's still like this. <laughs> so, Right. I mean, I've met amazing, kind, wonderful pediatricians and I've met my, definitely my fair share that are female or maybe even that are non-binary. And I'm not trying to say that one group is definitely responsible for everything. I I do think that. No, but I think you're right though. Right. Like, I think that that's, it's, that's rare rather than the Mm -hmm. norm. Right. So like when we have, like when we have to say not all, it's just another facet of like, because we put so much value and power, especially on the, on the words of, uh, you know, male doctors or men, Mm -hmm. masculine doctors. Um, we, we give a, we give away that power, right? Like all the time because they're like, well, the doctor said this, so you're, you're wrong. Or, you know, well, the doctor said, so I'm going to go with what the doctor says. And I was like, that's fine. We, I encounter that all the time, but like you and I, we were totally on the same page until your doctor said, so it's like two against one here. And like, I'm just curious, like what drives that decision? Is that because you really do believe your doctor or is it because of fear? Like, are you mm-hmm. afraid that if you go against what your doctor says that like something bad will happen, you'll be punished in some way. And for like so many people, that's true. Right. Yeah. That's not, I, it's not uncommon. I actually have had a couple of clients who told me that their pediatrician said they should maybe find another practice because they were asking too many questions, you know, and <laughs> not the kind of questions like, you know, my baby has the hiccups again, what do I do? But questions like, why do you recommend I do that? And what is your, you know, why are you mm-hmm. recommending that when it seems to go against what my baby is responding to? And why don't you think this matters that my baby is, you know, doing X, Y, Z and they didn't respond well to that, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that's, it's very unfortunate um, because it's an opportunity you know, they, as a pediatrician, they have an opportunity to do so much, like we do so much support and education and inspiring and, and just, you know, helping, helping grow healthy families. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the way to do that is not a dictatorship. Like the way to do that is not to stand (laughs) there and say, this is what it is because I say so. Right. You know, right. (laughs) Okay. And there's, that that's a help? good, I also would like people to not Google things sometimes too, because it is frustrating to have to un, uneducate like things that mm-hmm. are very, very scary and, and not correct. Like, I don't know, all of those like baby wise things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, or even that's, you know, yeah. I have clients who I had a couple of recent plug ducts and I had one client that was like, yeah, I had a plug duct last night before our appointment, but don't worry. I read online and I like got, you know, I got a breast massager and I worked really hard until that felt better. And I'm like, oh my God. She's like, well, I read it everywhere. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know you did. And that's how it is because that's, you know, the information that's out there. So I do understand how Google can be harmful, right? I do understand that there can be incorrect medical information out there. And sometimes even from, you know, what may or may not be considered mainstream or reliable sources. I'm not saying that they're looking it up on like, you know, some obscure little website, um, but it's outdated, incorrect medical information. So I get that. But I think that anyone who doesn't respect questioning and curiosity is not someone who I would work with. So exactly. I mean, and that's the thing is like, I understand the impulse to say like, only 
definitely listen to me, but in that, then I'm cutting, I'm totally devaluing any other knowledge or any other information or any cultural knowledge, like mm-hmm. inherited knowledge from these parents. And I'm also just totally devaluing them themselves as, as like, the, yeah, the, like you said, the experts on their baby. And like, one of the things that I think that it's really interesting is like how quickly and easily parents can perceive that attitude of, of devaluing and, and how I just don't understand how a provider continues on that path as like, they're oblivious. Like you're clearly just like watching this person, like kind of like crumble to dust in front of you as, as a parent and just feel horrible about themselves. And then you go do it again in the next exam room, like five minutes mm-hmm. later. <laughs> like, And like, is it because you're burnt out? Is it because you're overworked? Is, is it because you're underpaid? I don't know. But like, there's like, so there's so much damage done. And then they turn around and say, well, lactation consultants, all they do is make parents feel bad. And I'm like, are you looking in the mirror? Because <laughs> there's like, there's a lot. And then there are a lot of lactation consultants that really could use some more trauma-informed care training and more are, yeah. <laughs> ACEs education, urban ACEs education. There's so much like motivational interviewing. I'm like a huge proponent, but I think that's like, that's a symptom of the medical system as a whole as it's just this, like really this lack of trust in like intuition and innate knowledge. And, and I'm not saying like, I'm not saying like, don't trust your pediatrician, but I'm actually, I think what I'm really saying is that pediatricians also should trust the parents that they're working with a little bit more and like not just pediatricians, all of us as providers. Yeah. I mean, it's again, it's supposed to be a team. Like you're not treating (laughs) a number, you're treating a person. And how can you possibly do that without their input? How can you possibly make recommendations and, and have any sort of assessment without talking to them and listening to them and respecting what they say. I mean, if somebody says to you, you know, my knee hurts when I jump, you know, the orthopedist would be like, okay, so they write down the knee hurts when they jump. Like they're supposed to believe that, right? That's yeah. what, that's what we're taught is, you know, for example, like we're taught pain is what the patient says it is, right? We're supposed to listen to that. So if the parent's telling you, you know, my baby is spitting up 15 times a day, then mm-hmm. we should believe them, right? Mm-hmm. And we should validate that and say, okay, I hear you. Why is that happening? You know, and be curious and try to try to figure it out together. Um, You know, and and a lot of times, and I haven't taken motivational interviewing classes. I really should. That sounds very interesting. But I find that a lot of times when you ask more questions than give answers, it helps the client realize they knew the answer. Because you'll say things like, okay, so your baby's spitting up 15 times a day. Do you notice that that happened at a certain time or anything that you notice about it? And they're like, well, it'll always be, you know, 15 minutes after the feed. And I was like, okay. Do you notice anything else? Well, we're always doing, you know, or we're usually in this one position or we're usually doing this or, you know, and they will start to piece out mm-hmm. what it is. And I feel like there's so often that we have the knowledge in ourselves as to what's wrong or just hold not to listen to that by an entire system our whole life. We're told that we can't possibly know because we don't have a medical degree. You know, we're not an expert, all this stuff. But I think there's so much inherent knowledge in a body. Right. Well, Katie, but your vitals are fine. So therefore all your tests are normal. (laughs) Right. 
right? You know, like, <laughs> or, uh, or your yeah. baby is gaining weight. So there is no problem. There is no feeding problem because your baby is gaining weight. Yes. Right. Like, and like how many people like myself included who like, I suffer from like scoliosis and like chronic back pain and like a bunch of other stuff that's like chronic. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to go mm-hmm. away. Like you can't treat the pain efficiently, like from a standpoint of like a prescription. Right. Mm-hmm. And I have like plenty of those, but like, I also have to do other things and, and you like you go in for for pain or you go in for medical care somebody who deals with chronic pain and it is such a different experience because they're like well you're fine and you're like okay but I know my baseline and my baseline is not fine and I don't know if you can hear my town clock chiming noon in the background so sorry about that <laughs> no it's fine I actually don't I don't hear it you're fine oh, great. <laughs> um but you know, I, I know when I'm not fine and I know when my baby's not fine and like, maybe it's not in a life-threatening emergency. And I feel like we've whittled down medical care to like where the pediatrician's office, like your office visits are basically like one step down from the, from the emergency department, uh-huh. right? The, if you're like, I'm, you're not in the ED, but they're like, well, is it an emergency? No, then go home. Everything's fine. Uh-huh. And it's like, okay, well, why do we want to wait for it to become an emergency before we treat it? Like what, how, how does that make any sense? Like we don't approach that. We don't approach anything that way in life unless we absolutely have to, because like, that means like you're in just like basic survival mode. Like we should be working towards thriving. Right. Like, and that's, that's kind of the goal rather than just like making sure no one's actively bleeding or have broken bones. I have to say though, I really unfortunately don't see that as the goal of allopathic medicine anymore. Their goal is to keep you from being extremely sick. It is not yeah. wellness. It is not ease. It is not thriving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, Cause if it was, they would spend more time and listen and they would help deal with things before they became giant, right? They would help deal with thyroid numbers or blood glucose or blood pressure or all these other things that can happen slowly over years mm-hmm. and there would be a lot of difference in this system but i feel like the allopathic medical system is very much a a sickness system and yeah. it's really i mean i had an injury in oh my gosh 2014 oh my gosh it's been almost 10 years and i i broke my shoulder into four pieces and i had mm-hmm. a very long recovery with multiple surgeries and the allopathic medical system was really great like i don't think a naturopath would be able to you know put my bones back together or an herbalist like that's not who i would go to when i had bone pieces all over so i'm not saying that there isn't value in the allopathic medical system you know there very much is but i think the problem is it is swung so far over that there's no respect for innate wisdom of the patient. There's no balancing with natural, with diet, with herbalism. You know, I mean, herbalism itself is such an innate knowledge that we had through generations and generations of people that got completely pushed aside with allopathic medical systems. Mm -hmm. No, and it's true. And that's something that like, that's a thing that I run into all the time when I'm teaching and I'm talking about reflexes, especially when there's like, a doctor, an MD, especially in the room, they ask all of these like questions like, well, I wasn't taught this in medical school. And I'm like, what else do you do on a daily basis that you weren't taught in medical school? Probably lots of things. Like, <laughs> like you've learned things in your practice, but also like, this is like an incredibly niche thing. Like, mm-hmm. and medical school is full of like over like an umbrella view of science and medicine. And mm-hmm. like, you have 
you have to then specialize after medical school in, you know, to have a specialty, right? Because you don't get all of that information. And like, my specialty is in like infant feeding and like human lactation. And so like, that's why you didn't get it in medical school, but like, also you didn't get it in medical school because they don't spend a lot of time on human lactation because there's no specialty specifically just for the mammary gland. Like there is one for the sick mammary gland, but Mm -hmm. there is not one for the well mammary gland. And like, there is also like no focus on any of these maintenance and like preventative systems of health in, in allopathic medicine. And it's true. And I think that's because it's like driven in a large part, like that it's funded in a large part by the insurance companies who see no benefit in maintaining people's well-being. Well, and the pharmaceutical and so, companies. I know, mean, sure. Yeah. Like there's a lot. Such there's, big business. Capitalism. I mean, yes. it's just, it, it ends up like ultimately it's capitalism. Right? Like right? It's, it all comes down to like, we're dying because capitalism. <laughs> Unfortunately, I know it is a very yeah. complex system. And I know we've gotten totally off track because there's mm. so much that this all leads know, into, right? but it's so vitally important. And I think that it's already, in some ways, every time I think about it, I'm like, it makes perfect sense to do reflexes with feeding and babies. And then in other ways, it's like, I'm talking about their brain when people came to me saying they had nipple pain. I know. You know, and they're like, why are we talking about baby's brain? I'm like, because it's all intertwined, right? Like, it all goes right. together. Because if you swaddle a baby and put it on a pillow and you don't let it do what it should to come and use its reflexes to latch, you wind up with nipple pain. Like it's super, super clear once you understand it, once you learn, but from the outside for other people, they're like, wait, you're saying my nipple pain is because baby didn't use their brain to eat. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. It can be so misinterpreted. And I think a lot of it can be willfully misinterpreted to you by Mm -hmm. people that like are like, "Ugh, this doesn't make any sense or this is ridiculous. And you know, we should, all you should ever do is just laid back positioning and that fixes everything or whatever it is that like people are trying to sell their own versions of. And like, I think it's like you said, it's, it all is intertwined. And like the way that my brain kind of imagines it is like, have you ever seen like a labyrinth? Like, you know, that you, the kind that you walk, mm-hmm. you know, you walk in like a spiral and it's like switchback mm-hmm. trails all the way to the center and then back out again. And it's like, if you watch somebody doing that when you're like sitting down, like looking at them, like from like in a field or something, it just looks mm-hmm. like they're walking back and forth doing absolutely nothing. And then you like come closer and you like, you look down and you can see the whole picture. And I feel like that's what I'm doing in a consult sometimes is like, I'm just like, okay, follow this little trail with me. We're going to go back and forth and it's not going to make sense, but then we're going to get to the center and you're going to see it all. And like, hopefully it will make sense. And then we'll walk back out together again, making sure that you have everything that I shared with you and making sure that you understand it so that when I leave, you have it and then you really have a solid understanding of how these things connect so that when I leave, you're not like, my baby's not using his brain and he's not smart and that's why he can't eat. (laughs) You know, you can totally see a tired parent making that leap. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I like the visual because I'm such a visual learner. I can like see a little labyrinth in my head and I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like if you look at a labyrinth in a like a horizontal view, it just it doesn't make sense and you don't understand what someone's doing in there. But if, when you get an aerial view, it's a totally different thing. And you're like, oh, well, now I see what's happening, right? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I can see how as we lead clients through this, it can be a little confusing, but it, there's so much reward when they see it in action and yeah. when they figure out how to make it work. I mean, do you typically like, does this, 
is it part of your normal practice with, you know, most clients? Do you normally do reflex assessment with most babies? Yeah, every single, it's part of every single consult. Yeah. And, um, and I teach the parents how to assess reflexes too, because going back to what we were saying, you know, our pediatrician bashing session, um, (laughs) like, it's really like, I want parents to have like a really useful tool that's like also respected by the medical, like Western medical institutions. Mm -hmm. I want them to know the same thing that their pediatricians know about reflexes or more, because I want them to also be able to check in on their, on their child's progress without having to ask somebody else's help or permission. But I also want them to then show their pediatrician and be like, look, like, this is what we're seeing and this is what we're doing. And this is what's helping because that, that is such a great like first step as like practice for advocating for yourself and your child. And like, it's such a small thing that like, it's not a huge risk and it's a place where they can sort of like be in the sandbox where they practice advocacy, because there's a lot of times when parents have to practice advocacy on behalf of their children. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that, I mean, obviously since I'm doing this using telehealth with all of my clients, I'm always teaching them how to assess and they're always the hands on, which is great. I love that. That's so cool. (laughs) They don't need me to do things to their baby. That is not, like we said earlier, that's not my job. That's not what I'm not, that's not what I'm here for. And the more that they get comfortable doing this with their child and the more that they kind of tap into that knowledge and that ability Mm -hmm. and that empowerment and that, that feeling inside themselves that they have this knowledge and that they can do it. The more they tap into that by doing with their own child, the better it is, right? Yeah, totally. So I love watching them do that. And they do that assessment and then they do movements and then they'll do an assessment again. And they'll be like, look, this is what happened. You know, it is. That's the best. It's really, that's like, that's like the most successful that I feel is when a parent is so jazzed about themselves and they're like, really proud of themselves as a parent. Like they're like, I did this and like, look what I did. And, or like they'll follow up and they'll be like, ah, look what I, look, we, like we did it. Like it's working. And like, I did this. And like, you know, I like that even more than when, when I get like those messages occasionally we're like, you did this, you did so much for us. And I'm like, Uh I I don't, I don't hate that. Like I have an ego, but like, (laughs) I always think it's very sweet when I get like follow-up pictures. Those are my favorite. Uh Um, But I also, I also really even more love it when they're talking positively about themselves and their skills mm-hmm. as a parent, because I spend so much time listening to parents tell me how little they think of themselves and how worried they are that they're failing their children. And it's every parent and everyone thinks they're the worst one. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if I could just tell you how many times today I've heard that, like, that's all of us. And it's not you, it's not you, you're not failing, you know? Right. So I yeah. think what you're doing is something revolutionary. Well, I, I mean, I thank you so much. I think I've been, I have a couple of interns. And so I've been kind of thinking back to like, what are the things that helped me along the way? And what are the things that were, you know, everything shaped who I am, right? All experiences and all classes and all interactions. But what were the ones that I remember? What were the ones that I remember is most beneficial and the ones that I want to suggest to people or the ones that I feel like really shaped me? And, you know, I'll tell people definitely like the masterclass is probably the number one class I have taken that changed my practice and my knowledge and my understanding and my depth of tools and just so much changed in that class. 
But after that, I tell them reflexes and I tell them that this class made such a difference because understanding these reflexes helps me do so much, especially for those tongue-tie babies before that release even, right? Like it, it helps me manage the nail and improve the nail to be able to mm-hmm. use timing of release because now when we take away pain because that baby self-latched and we improved mm-hmm. transfer because that baby has a deep latch and mom is more comfortable now because we had a reflexive feeding, it takes mm-hmm. that pressure off, right? Because a lot of tongue-tie babies, the parents come to you and it's like a pressure cooker of like mom's nipples are shredded, baby's not gaining weight and they want to do it like now, you know, they want, mm-hmm. they want the answer, they want it fixed. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I tell other lactation consultants, I have a couple of that I'm not, I'm not mentoring these two, but I have two that are newer from where I used to live that have been kind of asking me questions and I'll send them things to read or links and just kind of, you know, trying to give them information. And, you know, I tell them they need to take this class because this is when you understand this, this is how you can make a difference today. This is how you can help them now. And it just changes when you understand how it's, how the brain's supposed to work and how it's working today, right? And totally. how it's maybe not firing correct. So I hugely thank you and I love your class. And I think that it would be lovely if, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't mind either if all lactation consultants took it. I'm like, <laughs> I want everyone taking this class. And I, you oh, know, I think you. it's even, um, even those who've taken the master class, I think there's different material in here. There is some overlap. But there is different material yes. than just what you taught in the master class. Thank you. Yeah, I had to have. I know I, I agonized about that, right? Because like I don't. I'm. Uh, I'm really good at marketing other people's stuff and like horrible at marketing my own. So I actually like don't even advertise it anywhere. <laughs> like I just sort of people who find it find it. <laughs> and um, but I also like kind of did that because I was worried that like it didn't have enough foundational information all by itself, and like it was like better off as an extension of the masterclass, but I'm not participating in the masterclass again after our contracts expire just because of all the other stuff that's gone around outside of the class. I I, I have a very special place in my heart for that class. And it, I mean, we poured our whole selves into it. Yeah, And I'm really sad that things are ending the way they are, but, but going forward, I hope that we do new stuff that's similar, that like gives people something holistic, like a bird's eye view of that labyrinth, right? Like that, and that reflexes was really meant as an extension of it. And then a really good friend was like, okay, but what if people want to take it without taking the master class? And I was like, oh, fair point. Okay. Okay. I, I have to like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to put some of this in here. <laughs> so like, at least it makes sense <laughs> all by itself. Yes. So. And it does. And there is, you know, like I said, a tiny bit of overlap, but definitely more than enough new information to make it worth it, even if you've taken the masterclass. So, you know, to anyone who's listening, any LCs who are like, well, I took the masterclass and I listened to Brenna there and I'm like, take this too, take this. It's so much more in depth. So, um, and I know that we, I've taken up a lot of your time and I just, I thank you so much. So thank you for making the class and for sharing this information with me today and trying to get this out there. So I, I hope you have a whole bunch of people who signing up to take your class very soon because it's very needed and wonderful. Thank you. And I'm glad this is a podcast because I'm blushing as I'm very bad at, (laughs) at at receiving compliments. So I'll I'll just say thank you. (laughs) And um, honestly, no, like, 
thank you too for having me and for having this conversation. And I hope, um, I hope most of it is publishable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and gosh, if there's, if there's anything, um, if there's anything you need, don't hesitate to reach out. I really love, I love being able to have these discussions and this has been a really wonderful experience. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change you. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast today and learned something new. If you know someone who would benefit from this podcast, please share.